0: Well, another good morning to you. I invite you to keep your Bible open to Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. This morning's, of course, sermon comes out of this passage. And uh, it is a passage that is known as the temptation of Jesus for obvious good reasons, right? It's, it's a description of these events surrounding this when Jesus was tempted by the devil. And so you probably have a heading in your Bible... Or in the Purack Bible, you certainly would find it there. And in printed edition of the Bible, you'll find a heading over this section of Scripture. Usually, the heading is The Temptation of Jesus, because, of course, it's about the temptation of Jesus. And yet, you'll notice, if you picked up the worship bulletin, that I didn't entitle my sermon this morning, The Temptation of Jesus. Rather, I entitled this morning's message, check it out, How Does the Father Treat his sons and his daughters. How does the Father treat his sons and his daughters? You may be wondering why I have given a passage about the temptation of Jesus, that particular title, that question, to bring that question about how God treats his sons and daughters to this text of Scripture. Well, in giving it that title and focusing on that theme, what I'm doing, check it out, I'm keying in on the first verse of chapter 4. Look there with me, the first verse of chapter 4, and what it says, and what it says in its context, that is to say, in light of what has come immediately before what we see in chapter 4, verse 1 which is, of course, if you lift your eyes up, a couple of verses, it is, as we saw last week, the baptism of Jesus, where God affirms the identity of the Son, and in particular, note this, the very... Preceding verse, the verse that comes immediately before chapter 4, verse 1, which describes the Spirit sending the Son out into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. The immediately preceding verse is, of course, verse 17, and look at what it says a profound and a powerful affirmation of the Son. A voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And then in the very next breath, this is what we read about this son that God is delighted in. The very next thing we read, Then Jesus was whisked off to a celebration with punch and cookies. Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Huh? Like, beloved Son of God in whom the Father is thrilled is now sent out into the wilderness. I wonder if that causes you to ask the question, why? Why? Not like, why is there a devil, or why is there temptation, or why some question about the problem of evil and sin and, and all of that in the world. That's not the why, but, but why would God the Father, through God the Spirit, expose God the Son to tempting by the devil? I mean, seriously, is this the way God treats his children? Is this the way God treats his beloved son? With privation? With isolation? With temptation? With suffering? Does a father really love his beloved son? Why is he sending him out into the wilderness? I mean, he's just been baptized. Let's have a celebration. Is that really how the father treats his beloved son? Is that really how the father treats his beloved sons and daughters? Does he not love us? Then why the wilderness? Why the chronic pain? Why the broken marriages? Why the struggle with infertility? Why the singleness when I want to be married? Why the dead-end job? Why the no job? Why the depression I can't seem to climb out of? Why the loneliness I can't find a relational cure for? Why the wayward children? Why the unfaithful spouse? Why the persecution from the world? I mean, are there not certain perks and privileges with being a son or a daughter of God? I mean, doesn't being a son or a daughter of God entitle us to certain kinds of benefits? You know, like like VIP treatment. Like a shortcut through the suffering. Or is the treatment that we see of the beloved Son of God in chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, is that the kind of thing we ought to expect? But how the Heavenly Father treats His sons and daughters? With suffering in the wilderness? With temptation? With testing? You see, at one level, this passage, verses 1 through 11 of chapter 4, is, of course, about the temptation of Jesus. That's the substance, that's the content, that's the stuff of these verses in this passage of Scripture. But listen, that's not the meaning. You might say, that's not the significance. Now, what this passage probes, please hear this, what this passage explores, what this passage presses us, for, on us to grapple with and wrestle with is what it means to be a son or a daughter of God. What does it mean to have God as your heavenly father? What does it mean to say that God loves me? What can I expect when I am beloved of God? What can I expect in this life? What kind of expectations can I have? What kind of expectations should I have? This, you see, I think is the heart of each of these three temptations. In each of these three temptations, what's going on is the devil is probing Pressing, tempting, God is testing Jesus' relationship with the Father. What does it mean to be a beloved son? So the passage is not, listen, it is not a test of Jesus' strength. Rather, it is a test of Jesus' trust. It's not a test of his resolve, it's a test of his relationship. And note to self, it is the same in all of our times of temptation and testing. Not of our resolve, but of our relationship, not of our strength, but of our trust. We'll see how this plays out. Take a look with me at the first temptation. Take a look with me at verses 2 and following, the first temptation there, where this famous temptation of turning, Jesus being tempted by the devil to turn stones to bread. Here's the context, right? Jesus is in the wilderness, and he's not had anything to eat for 40 days and 40 nights. And I don't know if you've ever tried this. I've not personally tried to fast for that long, but it sounds hard suspect I'd be hungry, and the passage says in one of the most charming understatements anywhere in the Bible that after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, look at verse 2, he was hungry. (laughs) Really? Oh, okay. Like, note to self, divine, yes, but that doesn't mean he kind of just, well, let me put it positively, divine, yes, and fully human. Fully human and fully hungry, as verse 2 says. And then comes along the devil. He's described in verse 2 as the tempter. Because temptation is his business. God tests. The devil tempts. We have hard circumstances in our lives, and God is testing us. But the devil is tempting us. God never uses those circumstances to tempt us. God uses them to test us. Here comes the devil doing his business to tempt us. And he gets to work on the Son of God. And this is what he says. If you are the Son of God, if you are the Son of God, what's he doing there? I mean, is he questioning Jesus' identity? Like, I heard on the street that someone said, you're the Son of God. I can't believe it myself. Are you really the Son of God? Is that what he's doing here? No, that's not what he's doing. He's not questioning, check it out, Jesus' identity as the Son of God. What he's doing is he's questioning Jesus' suffering in light of his identity as the Son of God. In other words, what he's saying is, since you're the Son of God, you shouldn't suffer so needlessly, Jesus. I mean, you are God's beloved. Why all the suffering? Why, Jesus, do you put up with this long privation and going without food so seemingly needlessly, so seemingly pointlessly? You are God's own beloved son. And there's a very simple way out of this, the devil is saying to Jesus. Certainly one that you deserve. You are the beloved son of God. And so check it out, here's some stones that you could turn to bread and make a meal and satisfy your hunger. And surely there's nothing wrong with that for the beloved Son of God. We've all been there. We've all been there when we've asked ourselves and we thought it was just our voice, it may have been the voice of someone far more powerful and sinister than we are, saying to us, this seems a little bit beneath your dignity as a son or daughter of God. And by the way, there are some stones over here that you could pretty easily turn into bread, at least in our version of it. That is, there is a way out. <laughs> so why put up with the suffering so pointless and so needlessly? There's a way out of this. And besides, a little nudge, little bump, you are a son or a daughter of God. You don't need to put up with this kind of stuff. In fact, pretty easy to change. So what Jesus is doing here in this passage, really the whole passage, and we see it here very powerfully here in this opening temptation, is he is reenacting, reenacting the temptation and testing of another one of God's sons, a son that was a nation, the nation of Israel, that was adopted by God at the nation's baptism through the Red Sea, where the nation of Israel was affirmed as the beloved adopted son of God through the waters of the Red Sea. And where did the Spirit then lead that adopted son going through the waters of baptism, just like Jesus? Where? The wilderness. The wilderness. Forty years in The wilderness. As Moses says to the Israelites in Deuteronomy chapter 8, so that the Lord could humble you and let you hunger. And feed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes forth from the mouth of God. Know then in your heart, Moses says, that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord disciplines you. Jesus reenacting. The temptation and testing of God's other corporate son, the nation of Israel, here in Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, with only two differences. The one is, they got manna, Jesus doesn't get any manna. The other is, they failed spectacularly, and Jesus doesn't. But he answered the devil, verse 4. It is written here, quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 8, the passage I just read, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes forth from the mouth of God. Yes, there will be hardship and deprivation and suffering and wilderness... But there will be nourishment from the presence of God through the word of God. Jesus is affirming here, verse 4. He is succeeding precisely where Israel fails and where I fail. Jesus is succeeding, not by virtue of his strength in that sense, but by virtue of his trust. Take a look with me, will you, at the second temptation there in verse 5 and following, which I think is maybe even more tempting, if I can put it that way. Here the devil goes on the offense, and he takes Jesus to the high point of the temple, which probably means he transports Jesus in a vision, doesn't leave the wilderness, but gives Jesus a vision of him on the high point of the temple, and he invites Jesus to do a very strange thing, to jump off. And why? so that Jesus can test his relationship with the Father. That's why. And the devil even quotes a little bit of Scripture to entice Jesus and sort of invite him to do something, just kind of prove that he really is the Son of God or or kind of leverage his relationship with God. So he quotes to him Psalm 91. It's amazing. If you are the Son of God, the devil says, look there in your Bible, if you are the Son of God throw yourself down, for it is written. And here he quotes Psalm 91. He will command his angels concerning you. That's a perk and a privilege of being a son of God. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Another privilege and perk of being a son of God. And since you're the son of God, Jesus, why don't you try that? What exactly is the temptation there, the second temptation? It is that the son should expect certain things from the Father. That Jesus can expect and assume a little VIP treatment. I mean, if he's really the Son of God, if he's really God's beloved Son, then surely he can do this, and God is going to come to his rescue. God is going to provide for him. God is going to deliver him as he throws himself off the pinnacle of the temple. God will show up. God will rescue. God will save the day. Notice how Jesus responds, verse 7, again by quoting Scripture, again from this passage in Deuteronomy, chapter 6, this time from Deuteronomy, it's still about the story of the Israelites in the wilderness. Jesus says to him, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. To put God to the test. You know, that's what the Israelites did those 40 years in the wilderness. They tested God like crazy. We know what it sounded like. Grumble, 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 (laughs) grumble. Right? Grumbling and bellyaching and all the rest of it. But what was going on was they were putting God to the test by putting God in a box of their own expectations. And so they're led out into the wilderness after their baptism at the Red Sea, and they are a few days into it, and they are complaining to Moses that this is not meeting expectations. And they are reminding Moses, we had like outback steakhouse back in Egypt. Why are we out here, Moses? This is not what we were expecting. We heard something about land flowing with milk and honey, and we see no honey and no milk but a bunch of sand and a bunch of dry stuff. And they were mad at God too. In fact, their disenchantment with Moses was a disenchantment with God because God was shattering their expectations. They had put God in a box. Laying on God expectations based upon their status as the adopted son of God, that's what it means to test God. To presume on the basis of your status and to put God in a box of your own expectations. This is what the devil is now tempting Jesus to do. Lay expectations on the father based on your relationship with him as his son. And yet we see verse 7, look there, Jesus doesn't do it, Jesus does not take the bait. Jesus rebuffs the devil and says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. That's the second temptation. The third temptation, though, is even more potent and more enticing, it seems to me, and even more tempting. Here, it seems to me, the devil pulls off the gloves, and goes straight for the chin of the Son of God with an uppercut. He wants a knockout punch. And so what does he do? Look there in your Bibles. He, again, verse 8, the devil takes Jesus, that is, transports him probably again in a vision to, quote, verse 8, a very high mountain, And showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. Look over there, isn't that gorgeous? And look over there, isn't that spectacular? And they're not on a sightseeing tour, by the way. This is a serious business of temptation. And the devil is showing Jesus all of the kingdoms and all of their glory and all of the authority that could be Jesus's, offering it to him. Verse 9, look there, all these, the devil says, I Will give to you. Only requires one thing: fall down and worship me. Fall down and worship me. Let me ask you: Where is the temptation in that for Jesus? Like, is the temptation really to kind of like get an upgrade and do some devil worship rather than God's service? Was that really the nature of the temptation? No, I don't think the temptation is to worship the devil as though that's the appeal to the Son of God. No, the temptation, listen to me very carefully, is to bypass the cross. To receive the crown without the cross, that's the temptation. And the devil, you see, in this third climactic temptation, he is pressing in on the son's relationship with the father so that he holds out to Jesus because he is the son of God some royal treatment, a shortcut to the crown. Don't mess around with the cross. You are the beloved son of God. Go straight to the crown become King of kings and Lord of lords without having to walk through the valley of the shadow of death in the way of suffering, in the way of the cross. It's the offer of the crown without the cross. That's the temptation. And let me say this, that's always the temptation for Jesus. We see in verse 11 that he rebuffs Satan and Satan skedaddles, at least for a season, but the temptation is not over for Jesus. In fact, precisely the temptation we see here in chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, is the temptation that I believe happens to Jesus at every moment in his earthly ministry from this place forward. Temptation here is not simply an event of tempting the Son and then it's over. It is the paradigm for how the Son is tempted throughout His whole ministry. Let me give you two examples. The one at the midway of Jesus' ministry, the midpoint of Jesus' ministry when He transitions and starts heading to Jerusalem for Holy Week for the last week of His life and He starts letting the disciples in on a little secret. Hey, disciples, by the way, you know, we've been having fun. I've been kind of healing people and all this kind of stuff and casting out demons, and you've seen me do all sorts of incredible miracles. Let me just tell you where this is all headed. You ready? Yeah, we're ready. Okay. We're going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to get betrayed. I'm going to get handed over to the authorities. They're going to flog me. They're going to crucify me, and I'm going to be dead. That's where this is headed. The apostle Peter... Doesn't think that's such a great idea. And for the Apostle Peter, check it out, it does not meet expectations at all. Like the beloved Son of God that's been doing all this rock and miracles, this is a Messiah. This is the Christ. This dude is awesome. He is going straight for the crown when we get to Jerusalem, not the cross. So you remember Peter's response. Matthew chapter 16. Uh, Jesus, that is completely preposterous. (laughs) Jesus, are you totally out of your mind? Jesus, that will never happen. Jesus, that cannot happen. Can't happen. Do you remember Jesus' response? He called Peter a certain name because he heard a certain voice Even in the words of one of his own disciples, he heard the devil's voice. Peter inviting Jesus, like the devil invited Jesus. Reach for the crown. Avoid the cross. And Jesus says to Peter, get Behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. That's at the midpoint of Jesus' earthly ministry. Now, move forward to the end of Jesus' ministry, quite literally the last moments of Jesus' earthly life. When he has indeed been betrayed, has been given over, He's been left by all of his followers. They want to have nothing to do with a Messiah who has to bear a cross and not shine his, polish his crown. They want to have nothing to do with that kind of a guy. And there is Jesus with his hands and his feet nailed to a wooden stake hanging bare, stripped bare in broad daylight, right next to a thoroughfare that goes in and out of Jerusalem with lots of passersby. And it's there on purpose as a deterrent to the people so they can see what happens when you mess with Rome. And there he is hanging, full exposure. What could be more humiliating other than for the passers-by, as Matthew tells us, to do this? Remember what the passers-by do as they're strolling into Jerusalem to have a little day in the city, right? And they pass by and see this Jewish peasant hanging from a cross. and, And what does Matthew say they do? Maybe what we would have done. They jeer. What does that sound like? And they wag their heads. You ever seen anybody jeer and wag their head at you? Jeez. How pathetic. Do you know what Matthew says, what Matthew tells us? They said, they called out to the Son of God as he's hanging from the cross, as they're jeering at him and they're wagging their heads. you know what they said to him? Quote, if you are the Son of God, you heard that anywhere before? If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Like you don't need to hang up there if you're the Son of God. I mean, the pain would be bad enough to want to get out of. Who would not want to get out of that pain? But it is the shame that is worse. The shame of it all. What an incredibly intense, just imagine it, temptation for the beloved Son of God who could go like this and angels everywhere. And he is off of that cross in a nanosecond. And yet the shame, the mockery, the torture, the humiliation, the cross, not the crown, is this? Really the way God treats his beloved son? Is that really how it works? So that when Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, it wasn't just chapter 4, verse 1. It was chapter 4, verse 1, and then through the rest of the gospel culminating in the cross itself. You know, there are a lot of lessons to be learned, it seems to me, from this profound passage of Scripture about the temptation of Jesus. There's a lot of lessons to be learned about Jesus and how he responds and the Scriptures he quotes and all this kind of stuff. And there's a lot of lessons to be learned about how to fight temptation. And you've probably heard sermons along those lines. I may have even preached a sermon along those lines about this passage is a paradigm for how to fight temptation as a follower of Jesus and to model our lives after the example of Jesus. And that would all be very well and good. But the point I want to stress this morning is this, that at the heart of this passage about temptation is a lesson for us all about expectations. As we think and see what's going on with this temptation in the life of God's beloved Son, I think it forces us to ask some good and hard questions about our expectations that we have in relationship to God. About how it is that the Father treats His sons and daughters. How we expect God to treat His sons and daughters. Jesus was tempted, of course, again and again to assume the privilege of being the Son of God, not put up with the pain, not put up with the cross, not put up with the wilderness and the suffering. If you're the Son of God, the word is to Jesus and the temptation is to Jesus. Or rather, since you are the Son of God, leverage that status to get out of the hardship. For you and me, brothers and sisters, the temptation is exactly the same. To assume on the basis of our relationship to assume certain privileges of being sons or daughters of God. That it must mean this, and it can't mean that. That my life must take this sort of shape and form, and it can't look like that. That as a son or a daughter, we shouldn't have to suffer, at least we shouldn't have to suffer without a good explanation, like needlessly or seemingly pointlessly. That as a son or a daughter, we should expect some some perks, some privilege when it comes to our relationship with God. I mean, non-Christians, they can suffer. But Christians, we should get some perks, surely, and some privilege, some exemptions, and a little VIP treatment. Come on. As a son or a daughter of God, we should be able to take shortcuts to glory. To bypass the cross and go straight for the crown, you know I understand that when you go to Disney World down in Florida, it is Disney World, not Disneyland in Florida, right? It's Disney World in Florida. I understand you like you can pay a little extra money and you can do that speed pass thing. I've never been to Disney World, but I understand you can like do the do the speed pass thing. Some of you know what I'm talking about. You've been there. You bought the speed pass, right? You don't have to wait in line. You can take the shortcut right to the front of the thing. Like Christians, I mean, I think the temptation is the son or daughter. God, I got a speed pass. I'm rolling right through, the, I mean, maybe a little suffering, but it's got to be short, it's got to be sweet, there has got to be a real clear reason why, talk to my small group about and celebrate how I triumph so beautifully over it, that sort of thing. <laughs> it's like a speed pass. What I think we learn from this passage And in particular, right, I built the whole sermon around the connection between verse 17 of chapter 3 and verse 1 of chapter 4. That's been the burden of the message this morning, to riff on the relationship between the Son and His suffering in light of God. Need to be very careful, it seems to me, about bringing any expectations to our relationship with God that put God in a box that says, God, you cannot do such and so with my life. You have to do such and so with my life. We've all been there, no doubt, those of us who profess faith in Christ, we've all been there where we've got desires for our life. We see some scripture passages that we're like, oh yeah, that's I think I think talking about my life. Well, look out, look that way. Kind of build up some expectations. And you know what God tends to do with the expectations when we box him in with those expectations? You know what he tends to do? He breaks the box. And I know there are some in the room this morning that know exactly what I'm talking about. Because I've already made eye contact with you in the service this morning, and I know that the expectations you had for how your life would turn out have been shattered. And it's not because God is not treating you as a beloved son or daughter. It is the way he is nurturing and nourishing that relationship. And so be careful what expectations you bring to your relationship with God. In fact, you might even say, don't bring expectations Bring expectancy, not expectations which box God in, but expectancy, that God will be God and it will be good, so that we don't make demands of God like the Israelites in the wilderness did, but we hope in God like the sun did in the wilderness. Not expectations, but expectancy. This morning we're going to close our service singing a beautiful, beautiful contemporary hymn. Recently written, in fact, and it is a celebration of what kind of expectancy we can bring to God. Not a list of expectations that God is going to check the boxes for our lives, but rather the expectancy we can bring to God because of what he's done for us through Christ in Christ's life, his death, and his resurrection. It is a hymn called, He Will Hold Me Fast. And it's built around that refrain, he will hold me fast, he will hold me fast. And the chorus then goes like this, he will hold me fast, he will hold me fast, for my Savior loves me so, he will hold me fast. When I fear my faith may fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path, for my love is often cold, he will hold me fast. Those he saves are his delight, Christ will hold me fast. Precious in his holy sight, he will hold me fast. He will not let my soul be lost, his promises shall last. Bought by him at such a cost, he will hold me fast. For my life he bled and died, Christ will hold me fast. Justice has been satisfied, he will hold me fast. Raised with him to endless life, he will hold me fast. Till our faith is turned to sight, when he comes at last. And then the chorus, he will hold me fast. He will hold me fast, for my Savior loves me so. Josh, you better come up and bail me out here. (laughs) He will hold me fast. Not expectations, brothers and sisters, but expectancy. That Jesus Christ will hold me fast. Jesus Christ will hold you fast. Amen? Father, thank you for the picture that we have of your provision, your power through your Spirit in the story of the temptation of our Savior Jesus. Jesus, thank you that you triumphed beautifully through the power and provision of the Spirit where we fail so often and sometimes so miserably. Left to ourselves in the wilderness of this world for a nanosecond, we would be completely undone by temptation. We are not up to the challenge. And yet we are, through you, Christ, and by your Spirit. You don't, do not leave us alone, you inhabit our hearts. You guide and lead and strengthen and provide. And so we bow down in worship of you, our Savior, our sinless Savior who was tested in every way, tempted in every way just as we are and yet was without sin so that you now are a sympathetic high priest and show to us freely and joyfully mercy and grace in our time of need. There is time of need in this congregation this morning I'm confident of. There's time of need in my own soul and heart. And so we say with the voice of faith, hold me fast, Savior Jesus. Hold me fast. We pray this in your name. Amen.